0: Well, hello! Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's good to have you here for this episode. And it's summertime, and living is easy, as they say. Although easier in some places than in others, it's real easy for me. But uh, maybe Tom has something else to say about where he is. I'm CR Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a number of things. Been a Professor of philosophy and home improvement contractor and a commercial real estate investor, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, enough
1: about me. Okay, how about over to you, Tom? Tom Price, it is very warm here in Connecticut. It's not as bad as it could be, but it is bad per se, enough for people in Connecticut to have their AC on and everything else. Um, You know, it's a humid state. Most people think of New England as kind of just, you know, a cool kind of borderline snow, but you know what? We get very warm.
0: It, uh, yeah, there are four seasons. <laughs> One of those seasons is yeah. summer.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and summer is real. I grew up in the South, so there's familiarity with this kind of temperature, and I, it doesn't bother me. I'm okay with it. Um, yeah, I'm writing things, uh, many things uh, on a variety of topics. Actually, the variety increases as the day progresses, but that's a good thing, and I teach as well. Um, but I'll pass it over to uh,
0: Dr. Sunshine. <laughs> yeah, Glenn, tell us about yourself then, uh, subject of the day.
2: Yeah, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. Um, I've got a uh, 501c3 called Every Inch Ministries. I'm a retired history professor. I'm writing and doing a whole bunch of other stuff too. So, <laughs> um Anyway, um, our topic for the day is coming out of an article that I ran into uh, called The Shattered Image um, of the 13th Century. And the jumping off point for this, he talks about C.S. Lewis's discarded image. And he says that, you know, the the discarded image is a brilliant work of scholarship, and it really is. Um, It's a work that I would strongly recommend anybody listening to this uh, to read um, just be aware that Lewis is a professor of literature. When he presented this, was presenting it to a bunch of literature students. So he makes all kinds of references to works of literature that you probably don't know. Yeah, and that's okay. You can still and, get his point.
1: And he's um, ver- and he's versed in philosophy enough to basically lose a lot of people who are even well versed in philosophy. He's just that kind of scholar.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, But uh, The Discarded Image is a great book, strongly recommended. But, But the author of this article suggests that actually a slightly different metaphor should be used here. Now, when Lewis talks about image, what he's really talking about is medieval worldview, the image that they had, the picture they had of the cosmos and how it worked. And we should probably do an episode on the discarded image sometime. Yeah. I think that would really yeah. be worthwhile.
1: Absolutely. But
2: uh, but for today, um, he suggests that really what we're living with is not so much an image that's been discarded, but an image that's been shattered. And the trick is that the modern world picks up pieces of that shattered image from yeah. the 13th century and sort of pieces it together to create what, what we have today, The problem is it's incoherent. In the 13th century, everything hung together. It was all a a unified whole. But by shattering it and just picking up little bits and pieces, we have uh, been left with a, well, let's call it a disintegrated uh, way of looking at the world and and worldview. And to make his point, he's going to go through a bunch of individuals and we'll see how many of them we actually get to. But yeah, Tom.
1: Glennon, Glenn, it's just worth pointing out that a, a lot of the work in Reformation scholarship and, you know, a lot of our audience is Reformed people. So it's important to note here that this is a fragmentation that the Reformation was always, we're already in the middle of trying to address. So this shattering had already kind of taken place and the Reformation is trying to run with a core thread of it. Um, and that's why sometimes people think of the Reformation as as embracing That shattering when they actually were not. They were actually trying to retrieve something that was at the heart of what had broken down and they didn't want to lose it. Um, But I think that's worth noting because I think a lot of times people read, you know, you have two schools. You have the Reformation as as thinking it sort of carries on uh, the full picture, which is not true. Um, But you have the flip side that Reformation broke things worse and I think both of those are, are erroneous readings of this. Uh, the Reformation had a uh, deal with this fragmentation. Yeah, I yeah think- and
2: in fact, the author really uh, pinpoints the Black Death, one of my personal favorite topics, uh, as uh, a significant part of the reason why it fragmented. Um, mm-hmm. The Italian Renaissance... <sighs> If the Itali- if the thinkers in the Italian Renaissance hadn't been so presentist in their own yeah. day, uh, yeah. or maybe antiquarian—I'm not sure which it is—and um, had gone back to the Middle Ages, they'd have avoided a lot of the mistakes that they ended up making.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, that they. But, but yeah, there's a yeah. te- there's a tendency to underestimate the level of thought and scholarship that was present before the Black Death. I think, you know, this is John Mark Reynolds, so in, in case folks are unfamiliar with him, John Mark Reynolds was uh, the founder of the uh, uh, a program at Biola University for, uh, it, let me think, it was, it, was a, it was basically for, well, I think it's the Tory Scholars, if I remember right, the name of the program, hmm. but it was a special program in, in sort of the Western tradition, kind of a great books thing that, um, was, uh, really, you know, a fine thing. Yeah. Um, let me see. He, he uh, see, uh, mentions it at the, at the great book Center honors program. It was an honors program. And, uh, but anyway, um, I think another facet, you know, when I was a young Christian and we would talk about the reformation, which wasn't very often, um, you know, I was in a, kind of mainstream American evangelical church, which more or less assumed that the Reformation was simply a recovery of a pure gospel from the past, that there wasn't anything else that was going on, sort of in the larger picture that was at all important. Um, When you get into the actual history of things, you discover that it was a much more interesting and complicated story than that. <laughs> Although you know, I do think that there were obviously important features of the gospel that had been obscured during uh, you know uh, the period in which we were trusting the, the Roman Catholic Church to be the, a good steward of the gospel, and, and they failed in certain ways. But I think uh, this 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 notion of an image that's shattered is a good one because, uh, for 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 a range of reasons, one is is that. Our time is thoroughly inconsistent. So you'll have people who, uh, you know, are materialistic in their understanding of reality, uh, you know, and then they will, in, 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 you know, inconsistently insert values and convictions that can't be derived from materialism this is a good problem. I mean, I'm not saying that they should be thoroughly consistent because if they were thoroughly consistent, (laughs) it would be just horrendous. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) uh, on the side of materialism because materialism doesn't give you any basis for morality, um, or, or beauty or anything else like that. Uh, so, you know, like I, I like to make fun of Carl Sagan whenever I can and he's a good thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's famous for
0: referring to his audience as star stuff, which, uh, is intended to be a kind of, uh, compliment in his, uh, you know, rhetoric, your star stuff in the, and, and what he's doing is he's, he's freighting in a little bit of the old cosmology to give you a sense of your importance. Uh, but frogs and rocks are star stuff too. So if you're thoroughly, a thoroughly consistent materialist, that's not a compliment at all. It just means you're part of the stuff of the cosmos.
2: You know, back in the new age movement, when Shirley MacLaine was talking about how she was God,
0: yeah. <laughs> if you
2: follow through consistently on on the new age movement, pond scum is too. <laughs> that's right.
0: That's right. <laughs> right. Well, that's you know, it's, it's
2: the same. It's the same thing. They're making the same fundamental mistake.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So
0: anyway, so yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think it's the, the use of the of the image of a of a shattered image is good. It's I think it actually is right that's where we are
1: well and in in, in in that world you have sorry sorry Glenn, i didn't want to cut no, you off but go ahead. but in that world you, you're right chris i mean matter was like the least common it is the least feature you know it was almost non non-being you know it, it almost had nothing to it where the flip side uh, i heard someone recently talk about um you have basically a, a inverted neoplatonism going on in the modern world where where the Neoplatonists would reduce everything to spirit, right? Because every everything material was kind of a, a, a you know a move away from it. Now you have the flip side of that. Everything is reduced to matter, as if matter is the most real. And you know the the fact of creation. You know um, and you know I could argue philosophically for it. I won't worry waste my time. But I mean the fact that that the material is, is derivative. And creaturely and dependent, and not the final reality from which to, re, to to relate everything else from, was a core insight of Christianity that it found congruous with kind of the ancient world, which is very foreign to what happens after this fragmentation, where you know material and the pure, what you know you'll often call pure nature, that nature almost has a kind of being of in and of itself. That isn't derivative starts to take shape and can therefore determine everything else. But it is right at this time of fragmentation where that stuff starts to develop, where nature starts to be considered almost as if it's self-grounded and you know uh, self-justifying.
0: Yeah, I had the misfortune this morning of reading a BBC interview with Daniel Dennett. I was doing it; uh, uh, I had to suffer through it so that I could, you know, glean some things for a book I'm working on. <laughs> But, you know, in that interview, he talks about essentially, you know, the consciousness is is illusory and he likens it to, you know, a, you know, a smartphone with a screen. And, uh, the real, the real stuff is the, is the mechanical stuff that's going on beneath this smartphone surface. And then you have the image on the surface where his analogy breaks down and I'm not sure he caught it or can catch it is if that's the way it actually works, who's looking at the screen. In other words, yeah. it, it, if my consciousness is epiphenomenal in the sense that he's described, what, you yeah. know, what the where does self consciousness come from? Uh, and I don't think that those guys yeah. have uh, anything that they can contribute. Yeah.
1: Uh, if consciousness isn't first truth in some way in this sphere, you know what I mean, irreducible at some level, then it loses its capacity to be evaluative in any significant way. I mean that's. That's it. Anyway, Glenn, we're probably, well, no, probably I, I, far from but, the historical no, this, no, point. <laughs> no, this
0: actually it ties in perfectly yeah. because this is this is really the heart of it. Uh, yeah. When we talk about the synthesis, that's one of the things yeah. that you know is being addressed here. Is how do yeah. we hold it all together? So is consciousness, or you know, that's just kind of a modern way or a pseudo scientific way to talk about spirit uh, or soulish or soul, um, you know, because those words have religious connotations that those folks don't want to freight into things but, yeah. if, but if we're talking about consciousness you know uh is that the the true you or the illusion and if it's an illusion um well it's a pretty entertaining and delightful one it, it reminds me of Puddleglum, you know uh in the silver chair where he says this this the illusion that i remember is better than your realities <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, The, the, the thing that, that's remarkable about this, and I'm going to reflect on the history a little bit be, rather than going right to the article, is that when, when you look at the Renaissance, uh, I would argue that in a lot of ways the Renaissance is a product of the Black Death. Now, there were already trends in that direction happening before then in some respects, but the core of the Renaissance really is something that we refer to as the cult of antiquity. The idea that the ancient world was all that in a bag of chips, you know, that that there's this golden age that was the Greco-Roman world, the Roman Empire or the Roman Republic, depending on who you're talking to. And that was when the world was bright and all was right and life was merry and gay, if I can quote Camelot here. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the reason and, and really when you take a look at it, th- there was a level of cultural despair about their own age that prompted that. And I would argue that when you're looking at, well, what what happens in the 14th century? You'll notice the article talks about the the 13th century, sort of the the peak period here. What happens in the 14th century? You get a climate shift. The Little Ice Age begins. It gets colder and wetter. Growing seasons shorten. Famines occur. Uh, 13, 16, 17 uh, was referred to as the year without a summer because it was cold and wet the entire year and the grain couldn't ripen for the first time you've got famines across all of europe uh, you've got outbreaks of disease culminating in in the black death which kills roughly half the population of europe in the space of 3 years um, you now the church ought to be able to help with this but in 1315 it got moved to avignon france
1: and, and you have and at then this in time.
2: 1378 you get the, the schism in the west well, where you've got multiple and- popes
1: yeah, and you get nominalism, voluntarism, and its roots. I mean, you you have the first fruits of Scotus, but eventually Occam. Right mm. around this period, in which the breakdown of of you you know realism begins to happen, really the first time in Western history.
2: Yeah, well, then add to that, you've got the Hundred Years' War going on between England and France, and if you take a look at um, at Well, let's say Florence, which many people sort of consider the capital of Renaissance Italy. Between 1293 and 1434, Florence had 12 changes of government. And by change of government, I mean new constitutions. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it was total chaos going on. And it's in that environment. That this the guy named Petrarch comes along as a poet yeah. and a bunch of other things yeah. and really initiates this thing called the cult of antiquity, where he's looking back to ancient Rome as this golden age, arguing yeah. that when Rome fell, basically civilization ended and there's nothing going on. And, you know, like I said, cultural despair, his own era had nothing to offer, all of these kinds of things. Um and the idea was powerful enough, it resonated enough in Italy that it took off. And that's yeah. why the entire movement, notice I, did, I said movement, not period, the entire movement is called the Renaissance, the rebirth. What's it a rebirth of? Civilization. You have ancient civilization, you have modern civilization, and in between you have this blank space in the middle, which we call the Middle Ages. That's where the term comes from
1: question there because it's just a gap in my own knowledge of that period but there is a retrieval of neoplatonism during mm. this period which is actually I, we often look at it negatively but actually in many ways a very positive move mm. for the renaissance folks uh, Can yeah. you maybe kind of spell out what the significance of that was
2: well the reason it happened was because the ottoman turks were were busy conquering the byzantine empire and a lot of refugees fled from there to italy and yeah. the net result is you get this, this burst of, of um, Hellenistic studies. And in yeah. particular, a guy by the name of uh, Marsilio Ficino finally translates all of the remaining works of Plato that survive into Latin, all, along with a whole bunch of other things. And so you get this burst of Neoplatonic uh, thinking. Um, uh, in Florence. Now, that's not the only trend. You've got uh, Pomponazzi, who's a Renaissance Aristotelian. But we usually associate the Neoplatonic movement with the Renaissance because of Ficino, who was the premier public intellectual of his day, if you can use that kind of term.
0: This is, I think, worth noting that, uh, you know, generally speaking, when we think about the history of ideas, we have a tendency to Consider them almost like hermetically sealed from history. <laughs> in other yeah. words, the ideas yeah. just kind of naturally unfold, or and new things kind of come up uh, that are introduced from who knows where, or what other, what source, or what what have you. But you know, the point that the Black Death plays a huge role in all this is is something that an historian would would remind those of us who are more interested in the ideas. <laughs> than in the yeah. sort of the occasion for a loss of faith in an old idea i think it happens all the time you know when you got yeah like when i think about it you know I, so one of the things about antiquity is um you know it's a fairly naive thing to, to to think about the classical world in sort of this monolithic sense that it was just all great and that there weren't f- fractures and and things that are going on inside it you know when the one of the reasons why the, why christianity succeeded so remarkably is that there is a lot of disillusionment meant <laughs> among the roman population <laughs> in other words yeah. they, they weren't they weren't enamored with their own they were commiser- they were worrying about the end of the world themselves all the time they thought their best days were all behind them they yeah. they had this sort of romantic sort of sense of of what roman virtue used to mean you know and they were always worried i was just i was just listening to an interview with with uh, tom um oh the guy who wrote dominion tom holland Holland, and, yeah he, he was talking about this he was saying you know you know in the first and second centuries these people weren't thinking of themselves as the zenith of human civilization they were thinking about yeah. our best days are behind us yeah. <laughs> they, were, they yeah. were worried about all kinds of stuff <laughs> yeah yeah
2: okay well let, let's let let's add this into the into the mix here uh, the epistemology actually also to some extent in the middle ages but carried to its its illogical conclusions in the renaissance is that truth starts with truth is knowable to the human mind mm-hmm. true truth absolute truth secondly truth is necessary for society because any society that's not built on truth is built on a lie and it will therefore collapse yeah and the corollary to those two premises is that the, your best guide to truth is ancient, successful civilizations, because obviously they must have known something. Yeah. Um, we'll add to that, by the way, a concept called the decay of nature, which says that in the natural world, everything has a tendency to, well, decay, to break down. And since human beings and human civilization exist as part of the natural world, that's true of us too. So all civilizations tend toward entropy, all knowledge tends toward entropy, and therefore the further back you can go in time, the purer your thought, your ideas will be. If you want to find the truth of anything, you go back to the very earliest sources you can find before the decay of nature came along and corrupted it. Mm-hmm. So this is why you've got the cult of antiquity. You want yeah. to go to the past. You want to find the earliest sources. You want to look at all kinds of ancient civilizations because they all must have known truth. And since truth is is a unitary thing, they all must have the same truth and therefore, our job is to study all of them and to distill the, the essence of truth from all of them in a kind of synthesis, which yeah. we see in someone like Pico della Mirandola's, what is it, 500 Theses? Yeah. Um, where he's trying to synthesize truth from all over the world. The problem is, it doesn't work. The medievals yeah. had figured this out, even with their much more limited sources. With the Renaissance, their obsession with the past means they go on this manuscript hunting spree. They uncover all kinds of ancient sources that had been forgotten, which is great. Yeah. But then they may, they're they making the assumption that all of them agree with each other. And that's where yeah. the problem comes in. Now, the, well, the medievals yeah. could have told them it wouldn't work. But
1: Yeah, well, you, you have you have a host of things going on here. I mean, I know Alistair MacIntyre, uh, the, the famous... Uh, Ethicist uh, was known for, uh, I remember Reinhardt Hutter asking him something about, you know, philosophical or theological ethical issue. And he said, well, you have to go back to where it broke down. So that mindset is definitely still around. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the way like the Reformation gathered, you know, hit, uh, you know in its early days, the way that, that um, being a part of a tradition works, but also its limit was very wise in the sense that it recognized that it was in you know it was it was a fallible means but it was a necessary one as well so you have a wellspring that for, you know like take take a concept of justice right you don't get a hold of what justice means apart from uh, a tradition that reflects on it embodies it practices it brings it to light but on the flip side that doesn't make it infallible that just returning to an earlier time somehow, you know, is able to gather a pure form. Um, but what it did mean is you can't extract yourself from that tr- tradition of reflection and shaping and embodiment that make you a part of the conversation. All the while recognizing that you haven't achieved a pure form. This was a very. This is one of the things I think the Reformation brought that is you know, largely unrecognized, even with the Reformation people, um, that it recognized a, 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 a honoring of tradition, a shaping of it, a necessity for it without making it absolute. And I think sometimes what you're hinting at is that even the Renaissance had the temptation of thinking if you could retrieve something, you got a hold of a pure form versus the Reformation that said, no, you didn't get rid of a pure form, but you got You got a hold of a form that needs to, uh, you know, bring itself to fulfillment in redemptive history.
0: Well, I think there, there, another thing to consider in all of this is, you know, we've got this sort of antiquarian naivete. Uh, Seventeenth century that changes, uh, you know, with uh, novum organum. Uh, you know, in Francis Bacon, you know, the new knowledge. This, this sense of turning away from Aristotle. a sense of kind of we've exhausted the the riches of antiquity. And now there's a whole different approach, and now now the the myth of progress replaces, you know, the myth of the pure uh, and uh, unified knowledge of the past. Yeah, the myth of progress waits a
2: little bit past Bacon, actually, to Pascal. Mm. Um, and this was one of the unintended consequences of Pascal. Um, there was a debate going on between Descartes on the one hand and Gassendi on the other about whether or not vacuums existed.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, they they knew about barometers. And they, the big question is, uh, what is at the top of the barometer? You know, when, the, when you know, you, the tube is filled with liquid, you invert it, you put it into a bowl, the same liquid, liquid you let go, and the liquid drops, and there's this gap at the top. What's in the gap? Um, Descartes said, well, matter is simply anything that takes up space. Technically, matter is extension, but basically anything that takes up space is matter, so it's got to be matter. Gassendi says, no, it's a vacuum.
1: Okay.
2: Pascal comes along and says, all right, well, let's do an experiment. And he takes a barometer and he measures the reading of it at the bottom of a mountain, takes it on a cart up to the top of the mountain, notes that the barometer has fallen, brings it back down, notes that it goes back up. And he says, okay, the most probable explanation of this is that it's a vacuum, because this is exactly what Cassidy would predict Descartes has to jump through all kinds of hoops and and kludges in order to explain where the matter comes from that fills this and where it disappears to. This doesn't prove that a vacuum exists, but it makes Gassendi's postulate of vacuums much more probable. Remember, Pascal in mathematics is also the father of probability theory. It makes it much more probable that this is the case, and that's good enough, probability rather than certainty is adequate as a foundation for knowledge. This is called probabilism. And once you get probabilism, that's what really lays the groundwork for the idea of progress. Because what it means is we can respect the past all we want to, but in all likelihood, we're going to be learning more and adding more to it and improving and improving and improving, and thus getting better and better and better. One of
1: the the questionable Aspects of it has been always that you know have we always gotten better and better and better at it, and that that part of it I think has has required the the layers of causality that were excluded when this stuff took off, especially efficient causality, which became, became dominant. I don't want to unpack that too much, but really looking at the you know sort of the immediate. Uh, physical cause of something, right, has become almost explanatory in the fullest sense in modern science, leaving out formal cause, final cause, meaning that things have a form and pattern to them, and that these unfold according to a given end, uh, purpose. Meaning, um, when those have been bracketed out, we've ru- we've run into a lot of problems of either projecting onto reality certain. Uh, you know, ends and purposes, or just uh, reducing them to function, and therefore eliminating aspects that a richer vision from earlier times would have included within within a scientific picture of things. So I think this has been a large um, criticism of where things ended up. And I think you're. I mean, I, I just listened to a lecture today by two Eastern Orthodox, you know, having conversation with a Buddhist uh, astrophysicist, and they were actually arguing the same thing we've been talking about a long time, the way that you bracket out formal and final cause from the picture of things, um, you end up highly reducing the scientific picture of things that I think would have been in the best interest of even Renaissance thinkers and and uh, Western science, had it not had an antenna for it, Bacon didn't have any interest in, in for, uh, final causality, and Descartes loathed the idea, but he qualified it under humility that we can't know God's intentions of things, therefore we can't include them in our, our, our scientific knowledge. Yeah, one of the things that
2: scientists generally, in my experience, especially the secular versions, seem to forget is that science is really good at at discussing what happens. But the question of why is a different thing. Why and what, why it happens and what happens are two different things. And they're really good at the what side of it. But the why question is the final cause. Yeah. And they they're just the, the, the science is completely inadequate for that. Now, it is worth noting that the um one of the effects of the Renaissance uh, desire to go back into antiquity is they discovered what they believed was an ancient Egyptian source mm-hmm. uh, by Hermes um, which would be the earliest source on religion and therefore the most pure and true source of religion which influenced Moses and others. Um, And this is known as the Hermetic tradition, and it's a source of Renaissance magic theory. Hmm. Um, The Renaissance firmly believed that magic uh, made the world go round, as it were. Um, Hmm. there, There were hidden occult forces in nature that made everything happen action a distance all these things i don't want to get into the weeds there
1: but but what you're talking about there is a higher level of causality it it isn't Mm -hmm. really as mysterious as we want to make it out to be we often think of magic as some sort of kind of intrusion into a kind of natural order of things but here we're just talking about a porousness of reality that is open to a level of causality that hitherto Mm -hmm. was not you know, it was not right. suspicious. You know, the, the earlier times were, weren't as suspicious as we are of that level of causality.
2: Yeah, it, it needs to be said that when we're talking in, in these terms, what we're dealing with is what's what's technically called natural magic. It's yeah. not demonic or anything like that. It's part of no. the natural world that God created yeah. that the magus can understand and manipulate. Okay, yeah. You know, so that, that's really what it comes down to here. It's, it's not anything, they didn't think of it in any way as as connected to the demonic, except maybe how did you get your secret knowledge, you know, <laughs> the, of these occult forces. But, but the reason why I bring that up is I've said before, I think on the program, that, that the, the Renaissance is the golden age of magic theory. And it is, in, it, uh, science develops in reaction to that as they're trying to get away from these occult forces and reduce everything to well actually originally mechanical causation that's really the impetus for to, for science it's to get rid of all these occult forces and things like that yeah now the, where this goes ultimately is a rejection of natural philosophy. And again, with Kemper Crabb, we talked a bit about that. The rejection of natural philosophy, mm-hmm. arguably, according to John Milbank, set our understanding of the world back 300 years by just yeah. trying to reduce it to efficient
1: causality. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What we find, though, uh, with particle physics is stuff that is kind of spooky action at a distance and we're not really able to... right to gravity too,
2: sort of,
0: to, yeah that's magnetism right. all of these things are really action at a distance well and also you know when you think about aristotle's originally original insight or thought that um you know there's always some kind of third thing that's kind of involved in any kind of causality um the the thing that's acted on the thing that does the acting is sort of the medium upon which and that's kind of sort of the framework within which the idea that vacuum is impossible, yeah. uh, is developed. Yeah. Uh, but in a strange way, I wonder if we're r- discovering that there really isn't a vacuum. <laughs> Do you get my, get, yeah, there's a, there's an absence of air, uh, in, in the top of the tube, <laughs> but yeah. is, is there really a vacuum when, uh, gravity waves can be felt over, billions of light years you know uh, <laughs> uh yeah. so in other words there is a kind of you know maybe liquid you could call it uh that we are suspended in call call it what they used to call it an ether yeah well that, yeah. that's well, it yeah
1: yeah well i think aristotle plato um, you know, we, we, could, we can shake ourselves all we want out of that stuff. But Christianity wisely understood what was significant in both of those traditions. Um, they recognized that it was kind of a, uh, a ground up and a top down connection. And that, that is something that is being recognized in science today. That was something that would have been left out of the naturalist mechanical visions Um, and what do you mean by that well there is a communicative dimension in material reality that for any potential to actualize itself there has to be communicative dimensions going on this is where the bottom up top down kind of connect the transcendent and the imminent if you will um, that that have to be in place for anything to, to realize itself there are so many thick layers of reality that have to be going on for anything to be living and flourish um that that mechanistic and natural sciences can in no way account for it's completely bracketed out of efficient causality and so you 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 see a lot of philosophical, you know the, the return to natural philosophy i think milbank is tapping into that this is happening i think even in the sciences that we can't deal with this in our reductionistic pictures um and so, we, 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 you know, the classic figures are back at it again as central stage. Um, and, you know, if you want to say it, it's kind of a renaissance in its own way. Um, and, you know, we have to think as Reformation people, what does this renaissance mean? Where we're not reactive in the wrong way to it, but actually receptive to it in, in a, I guess, a fuller Christian vision that can incorporate its positives without being re- reducing it to you know, another kind of naturalism or humanism.
0: Well, this is maybe where, you know, uh, Reynolds' reflections on Aquinas are relevant. So what made Aquinas great? Well, it was his attempt to bring it all together. Um, We don't really have anybody, as far as I could see, that has that in sort of the, in mind um, unless, uh, what, unless you know Albertus
2: somebody. Magnus and a few others were trying summa, uh, Aquinas was the most successful.
0: Yeah. But I guess I'm thinking about today oh, just okay. in, ter- in terms of our, our setting, you know, there, there's a whole lot more to try to incorporate, uh, the vast, and then it's growing all the time. Um, so it's almost as though we're condemned to this fragmentary, uh, setting, setting that we find ourselves in. Uh, because there's nobody out there who just knows enough. I mean, occasionally you come yeah. across, you know, a guy like John Polkinghorne or somebody, you know, who's like uh, an authority in you know physics and uh, Try, theology. Tries to
1: incorporate. Yeah, they're trying to incorporate, and you know, I, I hats off to all those people. I, I get it, you know, whatever their limits, I get what they're trying to integrate. But it's interesting, Glenn, because you're talking about a time at which, well, well think a, think a little later historically, at which. On the one hand, you have holding it all together, this fragmentation that's happening, especially with nominalism and voluntarism. I don't mean to be generic about those, but those had an impact, whatever you say about them. And retrieval or or renewal that you have going on in Renaissance and Reformation. But Reformation's focus is soteriological what is the Renaissance focus? I mean, you're, you're a Renaissance guy. Um, why did they take that turn and how could you integrate that reformational concern with that Renaissance concern for a fuller picture that includes creation and redemption in a way? I think that would be similar to what we're up to now.
2: Yeah. In the Renaissance, you, you've got the, the two things that are at the core of the Renaissance, and I'm not even going to mention art because art is a consequence of these. Yeah, uh, One of them is the retrieval. It's it's the, the cult of antiquity. But yeah. the other is Renaissance humanism. And when you use the word humanism, immediately people think they know what you're talking about and they're almost invariably wrong when the word yeah. Renaissance is in front of it. Yeah. Um, Renaissance humanism was actually a curriculum of studies. Yeah. In the Middle Ages, education was built around the seven liberal arts, okay, with a particular focus on dialectic, uh, which is essentially logic. Yeah. In the Renaissance, one of the things Petrarch does, it's part of his retrieval, he goes back to old Roman education. And what he discovers in Roman education is that the focus is not on logic, it's on rhetoric which is because Roman education, formal education was for the senatorial classes, and they had to be able to convince their fellow senators to vote the way they wanted them to. So rhetoric was was the pinnacle of education. It's why Augustine was an was a rhetorician. That's right. Okay. so um, so he redesigned education in what he considered a much more practical way around really four core subjects, uh, rhetoric, Moral philosophy, history, and poetry, with rhetoric being the the uh, pinnacle of this. So the focus on rhetoric there um, then has its effect on epistemology. Whereas in the Middle Ages, epistemology was you give me a coherent argument, a logical argument, that's the best yeah. way to find truth. In the Renaissance, it becomes clarity. The things that the the, it, the more clear something is rhetorical focus, the more likely it is to be true. And there's actually debates about this going on in the 16th century that people like, if I'm not mistaken, if my memory serves, Melanchthon and others are participating in.
0: So does that say something about modern literary theory and just how uh, difficult and uh, dense and uh, (laughs) unclear it is? (laughs) Dense is a good
2: word for it. Um, Yeah, but you know, so uh, both of those influence the Reformation. Yeah. So you get, on the one hand, you'll get, well, especially the Reformed tradition, but you'll get a new way of doing studies, that uh, studying texts that come out of humanism. I would argue that justification by faith emerges when it does in the 16th century, because they're looking at the Bible Asking traditional theological questions, how do you go to heaven, but answering it using the tools of the Renaissance.
1: That's interesting because, and, and can be problematic, <laughs> you, know, you know why, um, only because it, it asks the question whether or not the church, because it didn't have the antenna of the Renaissance, has read the Bible. Throughout history, it's doctrines of trinity and incarnation and everything else the right way. I mean, this has been part of the argument of figures like Lewis Ayres that know the, the, the significance of the hermeneutical framework that the creedal theologians worked with was significant to developing those theological axioms. And if you try to move the, to a different set of axioms, you, you would not necessarily get the creedal interpretation of the Bible.
2: Yeah, and the, the Reformation never really recovered the ancient church's way of looking at scripture, Yeah, but they did with their own, their own
1: approach to the text. They end up defending the traditional doctrines as well. That's interesting. And and I think that would be worth a uh, worth a book because in a sense that that's very hard to come by in other ways. Um, I think of uh, I'll give you an example: Karl Carl Bart's retrieval of the doctrine of the Trinity. He affirms fully classic doctrine of the Trinity, but he does it fully on non-traditional grounds, to which many question whether or not his interpretation is not. I mean, is far more consistent with a reading of the Trinity Enlightened, say, a post-Kantian metaphysics, than anything the classical Christian vision would affirm. And the problems therein of comparing the two become significant at a point. And, And it's a huge question for the Church because it asks whether or not a certain frame is significant for our reading of the text, one that is more continuous with classic patterns of reading, and more suspicious of alternatives, even if they come to the same conclusion, because you may be importing things not necessarily consistent with what, what the church has held. So it, it is a huge hermeneutical issue for Reformation people, because the question is, how, how significant is that change of context to getting hold of a biblical text? Yeah, so
2: what you see with Luther, for example, is Luther is going to argue that biblical texts, unlike the fourfold reading of the Middle Ages, biblical texts only have one meaning. But your core hermeneutical principle is Christological or Christocentric. Um, it, it really, everything revolves around salvation through Christ. And thus, a per- significant percentage of the Old Testament is properly read Non-literally, you read it uh, allegorically, anagogically, whatever, as a way to point to Christ. The New Testament is mostly, well, what we would describe as literal.
1: Yeah, but, but the Old in Testament a, in a way, literary. Luther Luther was just holding what the you know the the incarnational center of the patristic church at that point. That, that so Luther he wasn't innovative.
2: Yeah. yeah, Luther is the closest to holding to the patristic view, and actually. I I, I like to remind people that Jesus gave two hermeneutical principles. The first of them is, love God, love your neighbor, all the law and the prophet, hang on these two. Okay. The second is, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And these are the things that talk about me. Me, yeah. So if you are not reading the Old Testament and seeing Jesus in it, you're reading it wrong according to Jesus.
0: But if you disagree
1: with that, take it up with him. So Chris, you had something you wanted to...
0: Well, throw in yeah, I, the, my thought had to do with how uh, the patristics, you know, the, the fathers of the church, they thought of themselves as being in touch with reality with a capital R. So this gets us back to a Christological yeah. framework within which, because Christ is the logos, sort of the, yeah. the hermeneutic of reality, uh, the Rosetta Stone of reality, yeah. and... So Luther, you know, uh, you know with, a, with a marvelous, I, I guess, coincidence, <laughs> is uh, taking an approach that maybe has the kind of the Renaissance humanist, uh, uh, you know, sort of framework that he's, he's operating in, but just so happens to be tying it in to what the fathers would have done or did do uh but i think that's the other thing about this is that um if we're sticking to history and grammar and trying to bridge uh you know the the centuries uh then you know, you've got an enormous challenge of trying to justify your 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 thinking as being in in harmony with the the authors of the past because yeah. you're not talking about reality per se you're talking about uh, a particular frame of mind at a particular time and this is this is the wedge that yeah. postmodernism has driven uh to its ultimate conclusion which is we can't know anything about the past really we can only know the contents of our own heads and that's because they don't really believe that our heads are tied into reality at all. Yeah. <laughs> that we're just well, kind of right. like our, our
1: heads. Our heads somehow absolute, which they're not. They're creaturely, and so they're dependent like anything well, else. Well, that,
0: but also yeah. the fact they they don't believe in in the Lagos at all.
1: Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Other, other than just enough to justify that they're thinking in their own heads. Yeah, for example. Yeah, they, they have enough.
0: <laughs> yeah, right enough now of- I'm reading, you know, uh, the Meditations, uh, Aurelius, yeah. and yeah. he just keeps appealing to the Lagos all over the place, yeah. uh, bringing your, you know, his, and he's talking to himself. That was one of the things that's interesting about the Meditations. Uh, there's a school of thought that, that uh, understands them as, as just sort of a personal notebook, he wasn't actually yeah. writing for publication. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, he's trying to remind right. himself of things all the time, yeah. according to this way of looking at it. And he's trying to remind himself, you know, to get in touch with the Lagos, to, to not uh, lose sight of the Lagos and the meaning of reality.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this was something that was a commonplace in the world that Christianity went into. And it is a huge loss in, in the West. And I guess the question is with the, you know, the article, the, fra- you know, the fragmenting of things, the splintering of things, how that gets either reduced to, like you said, the subjective or, uh, you know, the, you know, projecting it onto reality, um, versus the inherent nature of things grounded in the infinite source. Uh, one thing that, All classical visions held is that the you know there was an inherent intelligibility in the nature of things grounded in the transcendent source that was the logos that was the pattern which patterned all of the intelligibility of creaturely derivative things and so to understand anything is both to apprehend intelligibility of the particular thing but you could only do it in the light of the full thing that illumined it and gave it the fullest sense
0: um you know yeah when i think about some of the valuable work of say the Reconstructionists or the Theonomist, it strikes me that they had a kind of an intuition a sense that uh the soteriological framework was too narrow that, uh, you know, many reformed people in the 19th century, 18th century were working in, and they were trying to recover something of the more, uh, capacious, you know, uh, project of Christianity, but they were, but they were already so cut off from the, from some of these things that we're talking about that they were just kind of filling in the blanks, but yeah. they were still using kind of Renaissance, uh you know sort of uh, assumptions you know uh,
2: still operating out of a shattered image picking right. up yeah. right. of the image but not having the whole
0: yeah yeah so i think we can give them like partial credit we can say hey you guys w- your instincts were right you know we're talking about reality with a capital r we're talking about the whole picture not just getting my soul into heaven to me that's what the yeah. Reconstructionists and the theonomist mm-hmm. got right they said you know we're too narrow we need to broaden out
1: yeah yeah well, that's right. And that, that comes from a puritanical, uh, ultimately a puritanical turn, which requires a revisitation of a, a kind of wider vision. Um, I mean, uh, you know, uh, others that didn't take that puritanical turn would have hel- held to that wider vision earlier on, but both, neither of them were able to realize it. So they're both kind of in the same, you know. They're in the same boat, <laughs> if you will, um, you know, because things completely went a different way. But it is interesting how, you know, I, you know I've been reading um, Thomas Pfau, who's a, a fascinating uh, He teaches, I think, English literature at Duke, but he is very well versed in kind of, you know, the shifts in, in culture. And he was just talking about how the erasure of memory, even for Christians, is just so profound that,
0: that the things that were commonplace have become so. Uh, you know this this deep. this problem. May, maybe maybe what we need to do is just have a lot of stress on recovering just the discipline of history. I, I saw something here it <laughs> just blew my mind. Somebody posted uh, apparently uh, you know some data from Google. There are a lot of people out there now searching uh, the the subject of you know uh, Oppenheimer. And whether the bomb that he creates is actual historical fact, and <laughs> <laughs> whether, ma- whether it matters, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but the point is, I just, I, it's just unbelievable to me to me that there are people alive today who aren't aware that there are nuclear weapons, yeah, uh, all it, over the world.
1: Well, so it makes me.
2: There, there are a lot of people who weren't alive or aware of, of anything during the Cold War. When we lived with nuclear <laughs> weapons as sort of on the back of our mind well, all the time,
1: yeah. Well, it makes me—I think for both of you—makes me, and especially for my own children, it makes me aware of the need for resources to give them in curriculum prior to their. like well, you—you know,
0: you know that they all know who. Uh, you know Martin Luther King Jr. was and well, that's they know right. they know yeah. uh, all about yeah. but but wrong but read wrongly. But but yeah. then they know all about <laughs> sexual politics and stuff like that. But yeah. they don't know anything that's right about yeah. World War II or, or anything yeah. you know related yeah. to the Cold War. They're just completely ignorant. Vast well, swaths of thing you know history. You you
2: will yeah. also find people I just saw this yesterday. Um there are people who argue that you know, in light of the bomb, basically what yeah. they're saying is that uh, the bomb was an example of white supremacy <laughs> <That's right>. and <laughs> that, in fact, <laughs> the United States was every bit as bad as the Nazis or the Japanese in China or anything like that during the period,
1: yeah. that yeah. that we were just as evil as Hitler. Yeah. 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 The, the, the moral... It, this the moral- is- yeah, well the the moral measure has been you know again er- eradicated so that it you know the, these kind of false equivalences have been made equivalent you know they've they be- been made to look like they're the same thing and like you said you don't have to you don't have to agree and have a, a purist interpretation of things to recognize qualitative differences you know um but nevertheless it, it, you know The the incapacity of people to reason with nuance is just incredible. It's incredible. I mean, the stuff I worked hard to train myself to get into good schools, to be able to articulate a good argument is completely gone in, in the university. It's a matter of hitting, like you said, these highlight points if, you know, if you affirm this, this has to be bad. There's no measure of what bad is. There's no care to establish a measure of good and bad. It's just to assert that whatever my elitist group has defined as bad, I need to basically just, you know, ascribe to as bad. Um, There's a deferral to A certain kind of popular class is what Chris is on to all the time, that there is a kind of elite class that defines right and wrong, good or bad, rational and irrational, and no one has to do any thinking. We just need to conform to it if we want to be in the in-club and somehow be cool, you know? And this notion of being cool and in the in-club is far more pressing than the beatific vision or any higher... um, uh, you know, uh, any higher life that the gospel calls us to. And so you, I, I know people that have gone to churches in Hartford that were evangelical so-called. They met in schools. So I'm not condemning that. But the people that hug trees and worship nature now and their kids are basically in transition is astronomical. Astronomical. And these were so-called evangelical, conservative, you know, uh, Rick Warren type churches.
0: Why? Yeah, well, I think we've been kind of touching in, you know, touching <laughs> that, that a bit. Uh, yeah. Getting, you know, uh, getting back to the framework in which, we're, you know, we're, we're conducting this conversation, the, this uh, discarded image um, and the shattered image, anything you want to kind of focus in on as we bring this, uh, to an end here, this conversation there, Glenn?
2: With about three minutes remaining, I don't think there's much that I can, can <laughs> point to. Um, I had thought we might get through some of the individuals here, although, and we did at least mention Aquinas.
0: Yeah, that's sure. <laughs> right.
2: Right. But, um, yeah, there, there, uh, the article is worth reading. Uh, we'll, we'll, of course post the link to it, even though we didn't really discuss the details of it much. Um, it's worth reading because it highlights a lot of individuals that, frankly, a lot of them are people that most of our or many of our listeners, I suspect, won't have heard of. Yeah. Uh, but but they're wor- they're important people. They're worth knowing about. Okay. Um, You know Robert Gross Test, uh, Roger Bacon. Mm-hmm. You know people like that. I should note by the way. Um, I, I always have to comment. Uh, Gross Test is. Um, rather unfortunate name, it can be translated to fathead. Um, But but the guy guy was genuinely brilliant. He's the first person who, who in the Middle Ages, who showed that he really got Aristotle's methodology. He laid out a form of scientific method. Uh, He believed in the importance of math as sort of the language of nature. And then Roger Bacon picks up on all of this and runs with it um, and does absolutely amazing things. Um, in terms of both his theory and his own work. I mean, he identifies, prior to Newton, he broke up visible light into a spectrum using a water droplet. You know, I mean, he he does all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, So much so that there used to be uh, fantasy books that that had him as either a wizard or a time traveler. (laughs) I mean, because uh, the the guy is, well, he's pretty much an incredible genius. Also very important, by the way, in advocating the use of, not only direct observation of nature, but direct observation of God's other book, Scripture, yeah, in the original languages. Well, this he's arguing a, this in the early 12th century.
0: This would be a great yeah. uh, topic, um, you know, the contrast between Roger and Francis Bacon, and you yes. know, what distinguished those two. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think we've got to the place where we can kind of bring it in for a landing, as we like to say. And uh, we
2: appreciate Speaking of bringing it in for a landing, Bacon anticipated flying machines. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, another reason why we need to do a show on him. But uh, thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast and getting to the end of this show. Um, just so you know, uh, we do appreciate your support. Uh, and there are different ways to support us. One is to just give us a good rating on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the show. And and the last time I mentioned that, uh, it resulted in some people doing that. And so please t- continue to do that. It helps. Uh, our audience uh, is large enough that we should have 1,000, I'm not exaggerating, 1,000 ratings. But we're you know just in the mid-300s, and it would be great if folks uh, took us uh, to another level in terms of the ratings because it does make a difference when people are searching for, say, I want to, listen to a, a podcast on theology. Uh, the ones that have the highest ratings are the ones that show up first. So, you know, at this point, uh, you know, you have to kind of scroll a while before you find us. We'd love to be able to move up that scale. Since we have about, we estimate, 10,000 listeners uh, across all platforms, um, I think it's feasible that we could get up to 1,000. Another way to support us is through our Patreon. Patreon. And uh, in fact, we're getting ready to record a little Patreon exclusive. So there are uh, little perks to being part of the Patreon community. You get to actually listen to uh, a show before it's available for everyone else to listen to and uh, you do get to ask us some questions directly on that platform and we would appreciate more people becoming patrons it helps us pay the bills anyway thanks a lot for your time and we'll catch you next time next week bye bye
2: The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the book by Jason Cherry,
1: The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, available on Amazon.